Welcome to the CSIS Cogitasia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. Deputizing for Calm Quinn, I'm your host, Kate Rustasi. We'll start, as we always do, with the region's news. In China, investigation into the massive explosions in Tianjin last week continues. The blast, which had been called an industrial accident by Chinese authorities, killed over 100 residents and first responders, with hundreds more injured and 70 still missing. Local reports indicate that hundreds of tons of toxic sodium cyanide were stored in violation of safety rules within the warehouses of Reihai International Logistics at the blast origin site. Residents affected by the explosions gathered in protest to demand compensation from the local government. In Bangkok, an improvised bomb was detonated at the Erewhon Shrine on Monday evening, killing 22 bystanders and injuring another 120. Thai officials are pursuing a suspect caught on a CCTV camera, leaving a backpack at the site moments before the bomb detonated. Thai police said Thursday that evidence suggests a team of at least 10 members, including some Thais, were involved in planning the attack. In Myanmar, fallout continues from the decision last week by military and party brass to oust Union Solidarity and Development Party leader Shui Mon from his position as chairman. Opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi voiced her support for Shui Mon, who remains the Speaker of the Lower House in Parliament and criticized his purge as undemocratic. Myanmar is slated to hold national elections in November. On the Korean Peninsula Thursday, South Korean troops fired dozens of artillery rounds into North Korea after the DPRK military fired a rocket toward a South Korean loudspeaker broadcasting propaganda messages. Tensions remain elevated following a landmine detonation in the demilitarized zone, which injured two South Korean soldiers in early August. In India, millions of citizens across the country observed Indian Independence Day over the weekend with cultural festivals dominating the social agenda. This year marked the 68th anniversary of Indian independence from the United Kingdom and the turbulent partitioning from Pakistan. In Tokyo, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's cabinet continued to monitor responses to his statement released on the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. The statement was closely scrutinized by observers in China and South Korea, who were affected by Imperial Japan's wartime atrocities. Reports circulated this week suggest Abe is considering a visit to Beijing to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping on the week of September 3rd. And that's the news. Our feature interview this week builds on that final story of Prime Minister Abe's August 15th statement. My colleague and Kajadasia editor Jeff Bean sat down with CSIS Senior Vice President and Japan Chair Dr. Michael Green to discuss the statement's significance, the reaction in Japan, and how it impacts historical grievances in Asia. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Bean, joined today by CSIS Senior Vice President and Japan Chair Dr. Michael Green. Uh, Mike, I want to get your take on Prime Minister Abe's statement. Last week uh, marked the 70th anniversary of the Japanese surrender in World War II. Uh, the Prime Minister and his cabinet uh, released a much scrutinized statement. Um, outside of the symbolic timing, why was this important? Well, um, the timing of this um, 70th anniversary statement on the war coincides with um, uh, the 50th anniversary of normalization between Japan and Korea, the 100th anniversary of the 
21 demands Japan imposed on China in 1915. Um, so each country has its own perspective. It's not just Japan, it's other countries' um, experiences, in some cases improving relations with Japan, in some cases suffering from Japan, so very loaded. And it comes at a time when polls show that uh, Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans are, um, uh, in general, much more nationalistic. And Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese leader in the 70s, when China was cultivating Japan as a counterweight to the Soviet Union, said the next generation will be wise enough to solve these historical problems. But they weren't. In fact, a lot of polls show Japanese and Chinese trust each other less among the younger generation and unprecedented levels of mistrust uh, between Japan and Korea. In some polls, 80% of Japanese say they don't trust Korea, a fellow democracy. So in this nationalistic kind of torrent, um, the Abe statement um, uh, had the potential to make things much worse, um, maybe make things a little better. Um, it, it comes at a time of rising nationalism and between Japan and China, geostrategic tension. And what was your assessment of how this went down with uh, Abe's primary constituency, the Japanese people? And do you think this issue will continue to dog Japanese politicians moving forward? I never expected, um, nor should anyone expect, that uh, one statement will resolve this issue. In 1998, uh, one of Abe's predecessors, Prime Minister uh, Keizo Obuchi, issued a statement apologizing, expressing deep remorse with Kim Dae-jung of Korea, and the press in both countries said this has solved the problem. Well, it didn't. Things are actually much worse now politically between Japan and Korea over history issues. So if the, if the standard was that this statement should once and for all put the history issue in the past and uh, resolve the tensions um, uh, between Japan and China, Japan and Korea, it that was never realistic. <coughs> um, I think Abe hit the center of Japanese politics. He's to the right, to be sure. Um, some would say to the far right. But this statement that he gave, uh, in my view, could have been given by any number of Japanese political leaders right now who are in the Liberal Democratic Party, who are the ruling party, who are at the, in the center, who are centrists. Um, so he aimed for the middle, and I think he hit it. Um, this was a cabinet statement, not a prime minister statement. So the uh, pacifist-leaning Komeito party, which is in his coalition, uh, signed off on it. Um, and the Japanese polls show his support rate has gone up since the statement. And while roughly half or so of the Japanese public and polls say they agree with it, um, when you look at those who disagree with it, they're divided between people who think he should have done more and been more forthcoming on the left, and those on the far right who say, who are unhappy that he was so forthcoming in expressing remorse and grievance uh, and grief. Um, so I think he pretty much hit the center in Japan. And the, if you aggregate uh, the people in Japan who said Japan should never have to apologize or the way he handled that issue was good, um, meaning those who think Japan shouldn't have to formally apologize anymore, it's about two-thirds of the public. So I think um, he hit the center and that the Japanese public generally broadly accepts don't need to keep apologizing all the time. Um, the really interesting question is, um, did he open space for a much more honest and factual um, examination of what Japan did? And he said in the statement, and then he said in his press conference, we must face the past. So um, it is, we'll see, but it is possible that this, although people have focused on the lack of apology, it's possible that you know, the way he approached this um, may open a little bit of space for more honest discussion in Japan about what happened. Because you don't see it in Japanese museums, you don't see it in Japanese textbooks. And so th th it might have opened up some room in Japan for a more honest discourse on this. Um, it played 
well among liberal democracies, US, Australia, on the whole. Um, China criticized it, but it was not out of the norm for China's normal um, uh, view of Japan on this issue. Uh, the Korean side said um, actions are more important than words. In other words, they want some progress on the comfort women issue, where Korea has real grievances. Um, but also, President Park and others looked at the positive elements, the, the deep expressions of remorse, and said we need to move forward. So on balance, I think um, he hit the center in Japan. He, he cleared the hurdle with US, Australia, important Western democracies. And it didn't set things backwards with Korea and may have um, moved things forward, we'll see. So uh, there was a report this week uh, that Prime Minister Abe is considering attending the September 3rd uh, parade in uh, Beijing to commemorate uh, the Chinese victory in the Second World War. Uh, what do you see as the likely outcome there and how likely do you think that this, if, if they were to meet Xi and Abe, this would be the third time that they've met. Do you think that this would be uh, a meeting to sort of demonstrate a continued trend in the improvement of relations or not? Abe-Xi meeting last November helped to put a floor under uh, deteriorating relations. And both leaders have reasons, economic reasons, political reasons, to uh, prevent Sino-Japanese relations from becoming too uh, tense. And, and therefore, I think um, that, that the prime minister and the Chinese government are seriously thinking about a visit uh, to Beijing. Um, however, um, the underlying geostrategic rivalry between Japan and China, the increased operational tempo of Chinese ships uh, near and around uh, J Japanese claimed islands, <coughs> um, all of that is, is unchanged. And so it's like two rivals who have just brought down the level of emotions a bit talked a bit more, but the underlying structural causes of tension, the geostrategic reasons, they, they've not been solved at all. Um, the Prime Minister Abe will not go to the military parade. I mean, this is going to be a massive demonstration of Chinese firepower. The PLA uh, two months ago said it will demonstrate China's ability to intimidate Japan and shock and awe Japan. Abe's not going to sit through that, nor should any democratic leader sit through a military parade of goose-stepping uh, soldiers in Tiananmen Square. So the question is, would he go after the parade? Um, Japanese news reports said he might go that afternoon. Not going to happen. If he goes, it'll be the day after, which I, I think is September 4th. Interestingly, President Park Geun-hye of Korea is also looking to go, but also does not want to sit through the military parade. And so you may have a scenario where both Abe and Park are in Beijing the day after. And this is not, as far as I know, the plan but it raises the intriguing possibility you could have a trilateral summit, which would play very well for Abe and Park and possibly Xi Jinping, because it would take the edge off of the parade for international audiences. Um, certainly, all three leaders are expected to have a trilateral summit sometime. The last one was in 2012. And, um, and uh, the speculation had been it would happen in November, around the time of APEC and these yeah, summit meetings. But I wouldn't bet on it, but I'd say um, it's an intriguing, if faint, possibility they do the trilateral the day after the parade. In terms of Abe going the day after parade, I'd put it at 50-50 at most, uh, but a definite possibility. Well, Mike, we'll have to watch that very closely. Thanks for joining us. Okay, thank you. That was Dr. Michael Green. Now on our One to Watch. People in Australia and around the world are marveling at a video of the rare sighting of a white whale off the Gold Coast last week. 
Marine biologists say that the all-white humpback may be the return of Migaloo, an albino humpback first seen in the area in 1991, who was subsequently spotted as far away as Hawaii. This could also be one of his offspring, Migaloo II or Migaloo Jr. Experts say that the lack of scarring from a boat accident, which Migaloo suffered off of Australia in 2003, and its smaller size, make it more likely that this is Migaloo Jr. The white whale is a product of a unique recessive gene in mammals, creating an albino of any mammal. That's our show for this week. You can always find out more at cogitasia.com and csis.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and also check out our island tracker and maritime-specific analysis on the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative, or AMTI, microsite. I'm Kate Rustasi, and thank you for listening.